Every marriage, every marriage, including mine, is going to go through seasons of flat spots, even seasons of great difficulty. Marriage is not always fireworks. It's not always fireworks. And it's in those times that we have to learn to go deeper together as a couple and rekindle the things that first brought us together. And the word for that is romance. It's romance. Now, I'm sure many of you know the joke when you, if you go out to a restaurant and you see a couple there uh, eating right next to each other, cuddling, holding hands, giggling, doing all that stuff, what, what's the joke? It's they must not be married, <laughs> right? Because that stuff just seems to disappear uh, after being married for some years. We tend to lose romance. But is it supposed to go out? Is it supposed to go out? No. But here's the key. In fact, it's kind of weird. I'm going to give you the key right in the beginning of this message. Write this down. You can check out for all I care for the rest of this message, but write this down. <laughs> what once came naturally for us now has to become, here it is, a discipline. It has to become a discipline. Romance equals discipline. I mean, think back to why, uh, if you are married, why you married that person in the first place. It's not like you sat there and you made a list of pros and cons. At least I sure hope you didn't. You married them because you felt passion towards them, felt love towards them. Think back. You remember the first time you held hands and the feelings that gave you, how you could talk on the phone for hours and you'd look at your watch and go, oh my, I can't believe what just happened here. Just the thrill and the expectation of being with them. You remember these things, but the question is, are they supposed to end? Are those kind of feelings supposed to end? I think, unfortunately, I'll say this especially for men, we think of romance when we hear this word, we think of it as a way to get our mate. And once we get them, well, we don't have to be disciplined and romance anymore, but romance equals discipline. The question we have been asking throughout this series is, are we looking to the world or to God's word for guidance in love and relationships? And I just got to tell you, from my heart, from my perspective, this is where the world and the word collide big time. You see, the world is telling us that when the feelings go out in your marriage, it's over. And you might as well move on to the next person who can give you those feelings back. But God's word says love, described that way, is not love at all. Love is a choice. Love is an action that we do. And it was modeled for us in who? In the life of Jesus Christ. We read this in John's first letter, John, 1 John 4, 9. God showed how much he loved us. He showed it. He did it. It was an action. He sent his son, his one and only, into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. God made a choice. He demonstrated what love truly is and the same attitude we bring into our marriages. If I could just give you one analogy I'm going to use throughout this morning for you to consider. I want you to think about marriage, romance, this whole idea as a fire in your relationship. With a fire, you have to be constantly adding fuel in order to keep the fire going, right? You got to add wood, you got to add lighter fluid, you got to add kindling, you got to add stuff to make sure the fire keeps going. That takes discipline. It takes work. And it's the same thing with romance in our marriages. It's going to take discipline. It's going to take work to make sure we keep the fire burning. Yeah? 
That's, that's where we're going today. Romance equals discipline. And we're going to see how this couple we've been following throughout their whole relationship has disciplined themselves to make sure they keep the fire burning in their relationship. If you were here last week, we saw them go through a fight together, and we learned this one really big important idea that fighting isn't necessarily bad if it's done well, right? We can actually learn to fight well, and what happens there, it can refine us as people. It can draw us closer to one another, and we saw a hint of that at the end of last week. If you recall, Solomon pulls his bride up into his chariot, and he describes their relationship even after this conflict, after this fight of being in springtime, being in full bloom, and they're like headed off into the countryside now to go rekindle their romance, and once again, we're going to see them in a very intimate moment. If you were here with us a couple of weeks ago, you remember on their honeymoon night, the husband starts at his wife's the top of his head and moves down to the bottom of her feet. Well, here we pick it up and the husband's going to start at the bottom of her feet and move to the top of her head. And again, I've been pointing this out. Guys, who takes the lead here in romance? He does. Once again, the man takes the lead, but women, listen up. You're going to learn something here. I think this is sort of a myth that's crept its way into our culture, that somehow romance is just something men do for women. This woman, starting in verse 9, is going to make sure she is also putting logs onto the kindling, onto the fire of their relationship with marriage. But first, we're looking at this guy, at Solomon. What is he going to do to romance his life? And here it is. Check this out. He's going to talk to her. He's going to tell her about her character, about her beauty, about how she still delights him. Check out chapter 7, verse 1. Solomon is speaking, and he says, How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O prince's daughter. Is she a prince's daughter? I mean, from what we've learned about her in the first week, is she a prince's daughter? No. She worked in his vineyards. She was no prince's daughter, but in his eyes, that's what she's become. She's become a prince's daughter. She is, he has elevated her. The curves of your hips are like jewels, the work of the hands of an artist. Now, you don't say that on your first date. <laughs> but, man, when you become intimate in marriage, you can speak to one another like this. Your navel is like a round goblet, which never lacks mixed wine. Yeah. Your belly is like a heap of wheat, fenced about with lilies. This is probably not one you're going to use with your wives, right? <laughs> Hey, honey, your belly's like wheat. <laughs> but again, we've been learning every time they're speaking, there's always some deeper meaning behind what he's saying. And this one is so cool, what Solomon is saying to his wife right now. The word for belly in Hebrew means the core of a person, a person's very self. Today, we would use the word heart, like your heart. So to tell her that her belly is like wheat and like wine, he's basically comparing her, who she is, to the harvest. You see, in Israel, there were two significant harvests. There was the spring harvest, where they would harvest wheat, and there was the fall harvest, when they would harvest grapes. And cool, what does God tell the people of Israel to do every time they have one of these harvests? Do you remember? You throw a feast, and you celebrate, and you remember the good things I've done for you, right? The good things I've done for you. The one in spring is called the Feast of the Pentecost, and the one in the fall is called the Feast of the Tabernacle. So now I just want you to put this all together and think about what Solomon is saying here to his wife. He's saying, you are such a great blessing from God to me. It's like the abundance of a harvest. You are God's great abundance to me. And I don't know any woman who wouldn't mind being talked to like this, right? 
You and your life have filled my life with abundance. You are God's blessing. In verse 3, he still treats her in the same respect sexually. He's still slow and gentle. You remember this one? Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. It hasn't changed. I like how Tommy Nelson says, though, a lot of times we men, when we get married, we become what are called serial fondlers. We just feel like being married gives us the right to grab our wives whenever and wherever we want. Marriage does not give us this right. And we see it here. This man still approaches his wife with great dignity. There's still no yo fonds. <laughs> and in verse 4, he speaks of her as elegant. Your neck is like a tower of ivory. Your eyes like the pools and Heshbon by the gate of Bath Rabim. I love that one. He's basically looking to her eyes and says, just like those pools are refreshing, you are refreshing to me, my darling. You refresh me, my spirit. Who you are refreshes me. Do you see what he's doing here, guys? He's talking to her. And he's telling her how much she still means to him after all these years. And what is he mostly talking about in all of these images? He's talking about her character. He's talking about who she is. He's talking about her heart. This is what you mean to me as my wife. I remember when our daughter was really young, she and I used to play this game called Sleeping Beauty. It's exactly what it sounds like. She was the sleeping beauty, I was the prince. I would come and you know, wake her up and, with a kiss. And one of the times I looked into her eyes and I said, you're so lovely. And she had this moment of pause and she looked back at me and said, I like it when you say that. <laughs> I mean, that's how you unlock the heart of a woman. You tell her, you tell her what she means to you. You tell her what she means to you. The rest of the verse says, your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon, which faces towards Damascus. Again, not the best one to use uh, in 21st century. Hey, you have a giant nose, honey. <laughs> Again, the t contextual meaning here, though, is so significant. The Tower of Lebanon faced east, and it guarded the enemy. That's where the enemies of Israel would come and try to attack ground. So think about what he's saying. He's saying, you're like this tower, this defense tower in our marriage. You remember they made that commitment not to let the foxes come in and ruin their vineyard? He's like, you've been so faithful in protecting our marriage, watching for enemies that might come in and destroy us. And he's thanking her for that. She has been faithful. And we're going to talk about next week, if you want a marriage that lasts, it's built on faithfulness. It's built on commitment. Notice that Solomon, again, talking about her character. Husbands, I'm going to give you a dare. Spend 30 seconds one time looking your wife in the eyes and just telling her some of the things you appreciate about her character. You're going to tear up. You're going to tear up within 30 seconds. And if you have children, I'm going to say this little side note here. I don't know where we bought into this myth that we shouldn't express, uh, you know, romance in front of people. Like that's something we, in, our in front of our kids, like that's something we should do in private. You know by now the research, right? One of the most important things you can do for your kids is to express affection in front of them. I'm talking about like verbal expression, right? I'm talking about hugging and kissing. More than almost anything, that gives your kids this sense of peace and security. My parents love one another. I'm safe here in this home. It's significant. In verse 5, he starts talking about her physical beauty. 
Your head crowns you like Carmel, and the flowing locks of your head are like purple threads. The king is captivated by your tresses. How beautiful and how delightful you are, my love, with all your charms. He's complimented her character, and now he praises her beauty. And in verse 7, he is still as desirable for her as he was on the day they met. He says, Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I said... I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit stalks. I have a friend who claims that as his life verse. <laughs> oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine and the fragrance of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. Hello. I mean, this guy still desires his wife as much as he did on the night of their honeymoon. He's respectful, but man, he's also passionate. So, fellas, let's just stop here. I'm going to spend some time talking to you for a minute. The rest of the text is going to look at the woman and how she responds to her husband. But husbands, have you learned anything here about how to romance your wives from Solomon? This guy, man, he knows the heart of a woman. He knows the heart of a woman. He starts with the things that he's appreciative of her, and he, remember, tells them to her. He is not afraid, if we've seen again and again in this book, to express his emotions, to express the way his wife makes him feel, the way that he loves his wife. He praises her character, he praises her beauty, and he assures her, I love you today as much as I did the first day we met. Husbands, how you doing in this? Honestly. How you doing in expressing your love for your wife? I'm not talking about a card on Valentine's Day day here, here either, right? Or your anniversary. Whoop-de-doo. I'm talking about daily. Expressing through words how your wife makes you feel. I'm talking about putting logs onto the fire of romance. I've heard it said, you know, well, we're not that good with words as men. I mean, none of us can compare to Solomon here, can we? Can we just say that? But you remember Solomon failed miserably later in his life. And the point of studying this is not to compare ourselves to these two people. It's to take learning lessons from them. And I've just met too many guys who think, well, I expressed my love to her once, so she should still know, right? I said I do, for crying out loud. No. You unlock the heart of a woman by telling her how much you love and appreciate her. And I'm going to let you in on a little secret, guys. It's a whole lot easier for a woman to give herself to a man who has prepared her heart in this way. A man who is trustworthy and respectful and kind and tender and gentle. So listen, if you haven't written it down yet, I'm clue phone here. Romance is a discipline. And for a man, it means disciplining yourself to telling your wife how much you appreciate her. Is this going to be awkward for some of you at first? Yes. Here's the question. Would you rather be awkward or let the fire die out? You're willing to be awkward to put the logs into the fire of romance in your marriage. In the rest of verse 9 and following, as her husband is talking to her, this woman basically interrupts him mid-sentence. Does that ever happen in marriage? Never, right? <laughs> but ask any man. This is what any man wants from his wife. She is responsive to him and to his advances. Ladies, I've been talking a lot to the guys and our role in preparing a woman's heart. Now the Bible has a word for wives. And again, it's awkward being a guy talking about this, but I'm just going to follow what we have here. I got to say, though, one of the most painful things for a man, women, one of the most painful things for a man is to be turned down by his wife. When his, a husband advances uh, towards his wife, and again, I'm not just talking about sexually here. Are there going to be times where you're going to turn? Yes, there's times when it's not right. And Okay, 
What I'm talking about is over time, as a husband continues to advance in romantic ways towards his wife, and those things are rejected, if they're laughed at, I'm telling you, they will stop. You see, I told guys, I told you a little secret. Women, I'm going to tell you a little secret. We're way more insecure than we pretend to be. We like to put on a big show of masculinity, but I'm telling you, nothing hurts a husband more than to repeatedly put themselves out there only to be ignored or rejected. Am I speaking some truth here? Amen. Look how... <laughs> Dude, you're busted. <laughs> Make sure you listen to last week's message. Uh, Look how responsive this woman is. She's just been told she's like the best wine, and she interrupts in mid-sentence and says in the rest of verse 9, it goes down smoothly for my beloved, flowing gently through the lips of those who fall asleep. This is a pretty risky statement. She's basically saying, if I'm like wine, come and take a drink. It's going to be smooth. I'm not going to resist you. I'm not going to resist you. I will respond to you. I'm not just going to be a willing victim either. Oh, here we go again. <laughs> Look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. This is for me the most significant thing she says. She says, I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. <coughs> that word for desire in Hebrew means to consume something. I am my husband's wife, and he wants to consume me. And she's glad of it. She's happy about that. She says, you don't got to look anywhere else. You do not have to look anywhere else to get your needs met. I want to be that for you. I am yours. You are mine. This is what's developed when the logs keep burning on the fire of romance. In verse 11, the second thing this woman is, she's not only responsive, but she's actually aggressive. She's going to initiate this whole thing. She says, come, my beloved, let us go out into the country. Let us spend the night in the villages. I, I think I'm reading this appropriately. Let's head to the Ritz-Carlton. <laughs> Verse 12, let us rise early and go to the vineyards. Let us see whether the vine is budded and its blossoms have opened and whether the pomegranates have bloomed. There I will give you my love. What has been the image used throughout this book to describe their relationship, the vineyard? They're constantly asking the question, is our vineyard still in spring? Is it still blooming? Is it still bearing fruit? And so once again, here they go. They're intentional. They're disciplined. They're saying, let's make sure our vineyard is still blooming. Let's make sure it's still bearing fruit. It's still springtime. For many couples, sadly, what happens over time? It's not spring anymore. There's no romance. And so the vines are dead. It's going through the motions somewhat like we saw uh, from this drama. I don't know how else to say this other than the fact that this couple is disciplined in making sure that doesn't happen. He has prepared her heart and now she is literally saying, let's find a hotel and see how sweet this can still be. Again, this flies in the face of what some of you were taught when you grew up, right? We've mentioned this. When Gnosticism made its way into the church that spoke this kind of aggressiveness from a woman that's evil, that's improper. Do you think God is frowning at this right now, this married couple enjoying each other's relationship after all these years? you think he's like, oh, get a room? <laughs> well, I guess that's what they're about to do, so. No, God has created 
marriage to be good. And he's created the physical side of that to be good. This woman is responsive. She's aggressive. In verse 13, she gets creative. The mandrakes have given forth fragrance. A mandrake is a fruit that was shaped like the body of a man, and it was believed if you ate it, it would give you aphrodisiacal desires and the ability to conceive children. So, again, literally she's saying, on our way to the hotel, let's stop by the pharmacy and grab some mandrakes, okay? <laughs> and over our doors are all choice fruits, both new and old, which I have saved up for you, my beloved. The choice fruits in those days were the best fruits. The best fruits money could buy. And she's referring to her body here. And she says, I've got fruits that are both old and new. What does that mean? Well, we've got ways that we've talked to each other uh, and we've touched each other uh, from the past that are comforting, comforting, they're familiar, but guess what? Even after all these years, I've saved up some new fruit for you. You want to talk about throwing some logs on the fire. <laughs> At this point, it's probably more like gas for the guy, right? Like, whoa, get the chariot, quick. <laughs> Chapter 8, verse 1. Oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breasts. If I found you outdoors, I would kiss you. No one would despise me either. That's a little weird. Uh, but essentially what she's saying there is in Israel it was inappropriate. They wouldn't allow a husband and a wife to have public displays of affection. Uh, so what she's saying is I wish that we were like brothers and sisters because I want to do some things to you in public that I just can't do. They wouldn't be appropriate. This woman uh, in verse 2 says, I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother who used to instruct me. I would give you spiced wine to drink from the juice of my pomegranates. That's the hardest verse to interpret uh, in this whole section. Most people think what she's talking about here is that she'd like to bring her husband home to her mom who used to instruct her to show her she is not ashamed of the love and passion and desire she has for her husband. Maybe she was taught that this kind of aggressiveness isn't appropriate for a woman. She's saying, I want to bring you home and show you it is not only appropriate, it is good. God has given you to me. I am yours. And your desire is for me. So ladies, are you with me here? Look at how she is initiating. This romance isn't just something for husbands to do to wives. Even in that last verse, I just find it interesting. It says, I would lead you. I would bring you. I would give you. This man, this woman has a man who loves her, compliments her. He doesn't take her for granted. His desire is for her, and she is glad of it. They are disciplined in romance. He has prepared her heart. And again, if you've got a husband like this, it's a lot easier to be responsive to him. When it comes to marriage, the best metaphor I've ever heard given is that marriage is sort of like a tennis match or a ping pong match, whatever you like. U.S. Open is on right now, though, so I'm thinking tennis. In a tennis match, what do you do? One person stands on one side of the court, they throw up a serve, and they serve it over to the other side of the court, right? And they wait for the other person to do what? Return it. Now, what would happen if you started a tennis match with someone and you served it, and they just watched the ball go by? You served it, they just kept watching the ball go by. What would you do? You'd quit. That's not fun. Even worse, what would happen if you served it and they're like slamming it back in your face every time? I'm done with this. I'm done with this game. Now listen, in marriage, there has to be a give and take when it comes to this area of romance. Yes? I mean, if there's only one person playing tennis, it ain't going to last very long. The fire will go out quickly. If you're hostile or if you just act uninterested, you're going to wake up one day as roommates, not as soulmates. And that's not what God intended for marriage. 
Now listen, this is really important because here's what we can't be thinking right now. This is probably what I'd be thinking if I were out there and I was you. I hope he's hearing this right now. I really hope she heard this part. Some of you have been going like that. I saw you. We have been talking about we're going to let God be God in our spouse's life, right? You're going to let God be God in your spouse's life. The only question you should really be asking right now is, what is God trying to say to me about the logs I'm putting into this romance in our relationship? What is God saying to me? What? Not what is he saying to them. You let God be God in your spouse's life. What am I going to do to make sure I'm keeping the fire of romance burning? Men. Can we learn something about being disciplined in this area from Solomon? Absolutely we can. Women, can you learn something from this, from his wife? I think you can. Now we're told in the Bible to love one another unconditionally, but I'm telling you, haven't you discovered that if you really want to grow that love into just a flame, if you just want it to burn, there's got to be a give and take. There's got to be serving and volleying, serving and volleying. It's like putting logs on the fire. If you're not putting it on, it's going to go out eventually. It's going to go out eventually. And maybe some of you are here this morning, and the truth is in a room this side, I'm sure this is true, and the fire is out. Maybe there are no feelings at all right now you have for your spouse. My question is, again, what is God asking you to do about it? I don't think he's asking you to say, well, I'm going to wait and see what he does about it or what she does about it. What is he asking you to do about it? The world says, hey, if the feelings are gone, give up. The Bible says, God's word says, discipline yourself. Discipline yourself. Listen to what I'm saying to you and put the log on the fire. And I will almost guarantee you, I can't 100% guarantee it, but if you do that and there's responsiveness on that person's part, I mean, maybe you've just, the fire's so cold, who's gonna take the first step? I guarantee you the feelings will come back. But we base so many decisions in life right now, in this culture, on feelings. I've said this when I do marriages. I don't think Jesus felt like giving his life up on the cross. I really don't think he felt like it. I mean, if you read his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, it was brutal. But what's love? It's an action. It's a choice. And we have to make that choice as married people. It's a, what? Romance equals discipline. In verse 3, just like when they were courting, she says, let his left hand be under my head and his right hand embrace me. She's not describing a hug. And in verse 4, the man once again acknowledges there's a right time and a right place for this kind of expression. This is the fourth time in this book he says words similar to this, right? This time it's even more emphatic, though. Look what he says. He says, I want you to swear, O daughters of Jerusalem, all godly women and men everywhere, I want you to swear, do not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. When is the right time and the right place to awaken this kind of love? It is in the covenant relationship of a marriage. And Solomon is once again reminding us of that in God's word. Listen, this is what romance is meant to be. A discipline that leads to enjoyment. Enjoyment. And that's what they're about to do. They're about to enjoy it. So now we're done with the text right now, but I'm going to address two important things before we leave this topic of romance. You can find these both on your notes. There's two different applications. The first thing I want to do is I just want to talk about, honestly, what happens in a marriage when romance dies. What happens when you don't have responsiveness from a wife or tenderness and love from a husband? Where does that lead sometimes? 
It leads to an affair. I mean, this is how affairs happen, when one person is trying to play tennis and the other one's not playing. And over time, they both stop playing and the fire goes dead. It stops becoming a discipline. Tommy Nelson talks about the six E's to an affair, and these are so good, I wanted to share them with you. So how does an affair happen? More importantly, I'd rather ask this question, how do we affair-proof our marriages? Number one, elimination. First E is elimination. This is everything we've been talking about this morning. It's when we stop doing the things that we did naturally at first when we started dating our mate. It has to become a what? Discipline. Romance has to become a discipline. If they get eliminated, the fire begins to die out, and that can lead to the second E, which is an encounter, where one spouse meets a person of the opposite sex, and listen, nothing malicious is happening yet. We're not there yet. It's just an innocent encounter, but little do they realize that if that elimination has taken place, the third E can also take place, which is enjoyment. At this point, there still is no maliciousness. But how many times have you seen it happen this way, where a man in his office tells his female counterpart, you know, you're really smart. Have you considered going after an MBA? Or whatever. The other side, of course, can happen too, right? Well, you're really smart. Have you ever, how come you didn't get the promotion? Okay. Now, what just happened there? Nothing malicious just took place there. But what could potentially be taking place is that man or that woman just received something from that other person who was not their spouse that they may or may not be receiving from home. Right? And when somebody pumps us up like that, when somebody affirms us, how can we not enjoy that? It's enjoyable for somebody to recognize us in this way. It meets a need. Now here, we've gone through three. Now is when danger zone happens. Now is when we're in the danger zone, and that leads to the fourth E. It can lead to the fourth E if we're not careful, which is expediting. E-X-P-E-D-I-T-I-N-G. How many of you have the Discovery Channel at home? What's an expedition? It's when you go on a journey to discover something, right? So how's this play out here? Well, I'm just going to, even though it's not the shortest way to the bathroom, I'm going to walk by her desk, and hopefully maybe I can strike up a conversation. Or, hey, I found out that he eats lunch every Tuesday at the same place, and you just so happened to go to that lunch place on that Tuesday. That's called an expedition. You're going on a journey to explore. You're building a fantasy island, though. This is where the fantasy island starts, and what happens next is when it gets deadly, which is expression. This is where the tennis volleying starts happening in a relationship where it's not supposed to happen. You know, I really like spending time with you. And you wait to see if it gets returned. I really like spending time with you, too. I wish I could talk to my wife like I can talk to you. Really, me too. My husband is so insensitive. You seem to really be in touch with your feelings. See where this is going? It's going to the last E, which is experience the experience of an affair. Now the reason I'm going over this is simply to show that an affair doesn't just happen like that. Ever, almost. It happens slowly over time. And if you want to affair-proof your marriage, the key is in the text we looked at. 
It's by not letting the fire go out, being disciplined and making sure you don't let the fire of romance go out in your relationship. This is why the Apostle Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 7, do not deprive each other except by agreement for a season to devote yourselves to prayer, but come together soon, lest Satan tempt you for your lack of self-control. Listen, there are needs that we need to be sensitive to meet in our spouse. I'm talking about all these, right? Spiritual, emotional, and yes, physical. And your needs are going to be different from your spouse's needs. So hey, what are you going to have to be? Disciplined in learning what the logs are that lights your spouse's fire. Friends, I think I am not sharing anything new to you right now. There is a war in our culture right now for marriages. Have you seen it? And I'm going to give you Satan's strategy right up front. His strategy is to get this area of your life with no fire burning anymore. Because once he gets a hold of this, once he gets a hold of this, man, it's just coldness and deadness. So you better be what? Disciplined. Now I'm going to say a quick word. I've been trying to say this every single week. Maybe some of you have fallen in this area. I mean, none of us, I'll, say, I'll be the first one. I am not perfect in any of these things we're talking about here. I mean, if I had to be perfect to stand up here, I wouldn't have preached one time in this series. And so if you've fallen short in this area of your life, we've been trying to say this, you know, I I think of it this way. God led the children of Israel out of slavery from Egypt into the promised land. Why go back to Egypt if you don't have to? We don't have to go back to the regret and the shame and the remorse. Once we have asked God to, you know, we've repented, we've turned from that, he's going to take you to the promised land. It's called forgiveness. It's called grace. It's what Jesus did for us on the cross. It's what we sang about earlier this morning. So look to the promised land. Don't look back to the slavery. Don't look back to the past. You remember the verse we've been using for this series? God can restore the years that the locust has destroyed. Believe that. Believe that starting today, if you're disciplined, he can restore the years the locust has destroyed. Now, that would be a really sad way to end, like a really negative way to end this message. So I'm going to end a little bit more positively, which is if you're sitting here this morning, you're like, yeah, I need to get better at this whole discipline of romance. Let me end with eight ways to do that. Number one, be courteous. This is so like, duh. But you can't be romantic to someone who isn't nice. Be nice to each other. Do the little things you used to do. Husbands, pull out the chair. Put your hand on the small of her back and let her actually walk through the door first. Little things. Wives, you know, grab his hand, his elbow. Rub his shoulders after a long day of work. I I don't know what it is for you, but what were those things you naturally did? They just came to you when you were dating. It's sad those things go away, isn't it? But they go away, so get ready for it. It's going to take discipline. Number two, be together. When is it time for just the two of you to build that fire? When is your date night, guys? I'm not talking about going through the drive-thru. Listen, when life starts getting crazy, does being together intentionally have to become a discipline? It has to become a discipline. That's how you build the fire. And by the way, guys, this one's for total free. You don't even have to pay me for this. If you do take her out to dinner, make sure the TV's behind you, not behind her. (laughs) Life experience, guys, life experience. I'm here to help, I'm here to help. Number three, be expressive. Tell each other how you feel. Often, 
If we've learned anything from this couple in Song of Solomon, it's that neither of them are afraid to express their feelings. Guys, I know, you might say, I'm not naturally good at this. There's some women who would say the same thing. Here's all I'd say is, would you give it a try? Would you give it a try? If you can't say it, write it down. Write a note, write a letter, read it to her, read it to him. Here's another good little discipline. Start practicing saying one thing you appreciate about your spouse every day. It doesn't have to be big things. There's one thing that I appreciate about you. Dinner was great tonight, honey. Just start there. I really appreciate this. I really appreciate that. Number four, be affectionate. It's called love with skin on it. Science tells us, this is kind of cool, that hugging and kissing is actually healthy for us. It releases endorphins. And when I say affectionate, fellas, I'm talking non-sexual affection. Non-sexual affection, right? You're not affectionate just so that it can lead somewhere else. Well, you say, well, I'm just not that affectionate. Change. Listen, we know this about every other area in our life, right? What happens when we make something a discipline? It eventually becomes a habit. Why are we like okay with that in sports or other things? Listen, if you want to change, discipline yourself, be affectionate, guess what? Eventually it'll become a habit. Eventually it won't feel as awkward. Number five, be creative. Man, I can look back on some of the early parts. You can all do this, I know. But you can probably look back at some of the early parts of your relationships. You're like, man, I was really creative. I wrote that. And now, like, the most creative thing I do is, like, where do you want to eat tonight, Chinese or Italian? <laughs> lame, lame. You've got to be purposeful, disciplined in your creativity. Think about ways you can be exciting. I once heard a story of two guys who would go running every morning. One of the guys was going super fast on this particular morning, and the other guy was like, what? Why are you running so fast? Slow down. He goes, well, my wife wrote me a note. And he said, so what? Your wife always writes you notes. Yeah, but she wrote it with lipstick on the mirror. Run! Run! <laughs> Surprise each other. Leave notes where you wouldn't think. Plan nights, listen, that are different than every other night, as we saw in the drama. Number six, be thoughtful. Call ahead. If you're at work, call ahead. Call home and say, I'll be home in 15 minutes. Can I pick up anything at the store for you? Here's a really good one. A great question to ask. How can I pray for you today? And then check this out. You don't just ask the question. You know what you do? You pray for them. Right then and right there. You want to talk about being thoughtful. Dr. Laura Schlesinger, some of you know her, she once said, to me, the sound of my husband vacuuming is foreplay. <laughs> Why? Because he's being thoughtful with no strings attached. There's no strings attached. He's just being thoughtful. Number seven, be energetic. With young kids, work, extracurricular activities, this is a hard one, right? I mean, we're there. Like 9 p.m., I'm ready to crash. But you've got to put something into it, otherwise the fire will go out. Great question I once heard asked is, who do you give your best self to? And for so many, the answer is, I give my best self to work, I give my best self uh, to my kids, I give my best self to my friends, I give my best self to uh, my hobbies. When do you give your best self to your spouse? Are you energetic? And then last, be insightful. Be insightful to your mate. I put in parentheses, to your mate. You've got to learn what makes your mate tick. 
For some people, the book, The Five Love Languages, has been really helpful in this because what that basically says, and I think this is true, like all of us receive love differently. What might might feel like love to me might not feel like love to my wife. And so this book talks about, you know, for some people, physical touch is a way they feel love. For others, words of affirmation are a way that they feel love. For others, acts of serving, like serving your spouse, that's how they feel loved. Others say just quality time together, uh, that's how I feel loved. And I'm forgetting one, one of them is, somebody, gifts, yes. That's because it's my least favorite one, that's why I forgot it. Gifts, sometimes just bringing little gifts makes your spouse feel loved. Now here's the problem, what do we tend to do? We tend to love our spouse the way we want to be loved. Instead of loving them the way they feel loved, that's why romance equals, you're getting it, you're getting it. God never intended for married couples to just coexist. Coexist. The day we die is meant to be as delightful as the day we first met. What is natural at first, though, takes, do it again, discipline. discipline. Let's pray. Lord, I'm particularly conscious of uh, the fact that, that in this room, uh, it's so easy for all of our marriages to let the fire die out, to not be careful about this. And we're reminded that uh, Satan wants to have our marriages. And this is the area he's going to attack. So this morning, we're grateful that in your word, in the Bible, there are words of wisdom for how we can make sure we fight against his attacks, how we can keep the fire of romance burning. And so I pray for every couple in this room. God, I pray that they would fight. I pray that they would listen to what you are saying to them, not to what you hope they're saying to their spouse. Let us be a people who stands upon your word God, would you give us strength, and would you please give us grace? Give us grace. We need it. We need your help in this area. And Lord, for any who are here who this may bring up some really bad hurt, remind them that you are a God who restores the years the locust has destroyed. They can start fresh today because of your mercy and grace. Where would any of us be without your mercy and grace? Everybody agreed and said, amen. I'm going to invite the members of our prayer team to make their way forward. If you need prayer for any reason, we'll be down here for you. Otherwise, one more week left. Hopefully, uh, we'll see you back here next week as we look at the final uh, section in this, in this book. God bless you.